Welcome to Mr. and Mrs. Therapy, the podcast that empowers you to transform life's challenges into opportunities for personal growth and healthier relationships. We're your host, Tim and Ruth Olson, licensed marriage and family therapists and trauma experts. As experienced therapists with backgrounds in addressing trauma and mental health disorders, we believe there is hope and there certainly is healing. We've spent our lives supporting people through the ups and downs, and we want to share these insights with you. Together, we'll unravel the layers of personal growth, healing from trauma, and building healthy relationships. Each week, we'll bring you engaging conversations, expert insights, and practical strategies to help you heal from the past, foster healthy communication, and develop enduring love. This podcast is your guide to transforming adversity into triumph, healing wounds and past trauma, gaining wisdom and insight, and creating meaningful, fulfilling connections. So if you're here to heal, to better understand yourself or your relationships, you're in the right place. So sit back, get comfortable, bring your trauma and your drama, and let's start healing. Welcome Welcome to to Mr. and Mrs. Therapy. Therapy. Hey everyone, welcome back to Mr. and Mrs. Therapy Podcast. We're so glad that you're here with us today. Today we're going to start off on our series of anxiety, and this will be a four-part series. So today we're going to go through the diagnostic criteria of generalized anxiety disorder. In the next episode, we're going to talk about differential diagnoses. And then for the third part of the series, we're going to talk about how does anxiety affect your daily life. And then we're going to go into how to manage and overcome anxiety. So let's jump into today's episode as we talk about the symptoms and the diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder. I think one of the important things to know is that we tend to use the term anxiety as interchangeable between stress and worried. But when we're talking about an anxiety disorder, there's very specific criteria that you have to meet in order to actually have that diagnosis. Being stressed or worried tend to be more transient versus something like anxiety is something that sticks around longer. And I think this is one of those diagnoses where people are very familiar with it, at least in part, right? So whether you have anxiety yourself or you know of a coworker or a friend who's experiencing it, it is something that I think we talk about a lot in our society. And like you said, sometimes it does get mixed in with just stress and overwhelm. But I do think that people are pretty familiar with the idea of anxiety. But we do want to go through this diagnostic criteria because I think sometimes we can see the anxiety on others and it's easy to pick up that way. But when we are experiencing anxiety ourselves, sometimes we're not as in tune with it. And this is where you get people who go to the hospital and they say, I'm having a heart attack when really it's a panic attack or some form of anxiety that they're experiencing. So as we go through the criteria today, we really hope to bring some good information that can help you to familiarize yourself with what clinical anxiety is. So the first thing to be aware of, like I was saying a little bit ago, is that generalized anxiety disorder is not transient, meaning it doesn't kind of come and go. The first criteria for it is excessive anxiety and worry for at least six months. So there's a good amount of time where you're feeling this before you can be diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. And a lot of times, again, going back to that difference between like stress or worry about a situation is that it is just that it's a situational type thing. And then once that situation ends, it kind of goes away. But the problem with generalized anxiety disorder, it's not really linked to a specific situation. Just like the name suggests, it's just you feel this general sense of anxiety that's just kind of simmering all the time. And within those six months, 
it's occurring in more days than not. And so it's not just saying, oh, over that six-month period, I did have anxiety here and there. But overall, it's happening more often than not. The second criteria is that the person finds it difficult to control the worry. And so this would include if you're trying to do things to manage that anxiety, like exercising or going for walks or talking to people about it. But then still, you're just having this difficult time and that anxiety still persists. Even when in the past, you may have used some of these techniques and they're effective, but now all of a sudden, I'm still feeling anxious. I can't really manage it very well. Now, this next section is where anxiety gets to be a little bit more unique per person. Because in this next section, we're going to read off six different symptoms, and you need to be three of these next six symptoms. So the first one is restlessness, feeling keyed up or on edge. So it's kind of a hard time sitting still. You almost want to bounce your knee or get up and pace or feeling on edge like you're just very nervous or you're just like in anticipation for something to happen. And an interesting thing about this is that this can look very similar to ADHD, but the difference is for people who might be restless with ADHD, there's no worry or concern behind that. It's just they're restless. It's kind of hard to sit down. They want to get up, move, and fidget, but there's no worry or concern behind that versus something like generalized anxiety disorder. There is this nervous tension that's kind of making you feel that restlessness. The second of these six symptoms is being easily fatigued. And so I would say with a lot of these, like Tim said, it's very personalized. So easily fatigued to one person is different than the next person. So I would say in those six months, are you more easily fatigued than normal for you? And part of this is anxiety is really exhausting to constantly be up thinking about something, always being on edge, kind of having this hyper alertness. And later on, we're going to talk about how it affects your sleep. When it affects your sleep, then obviously you're more tired throughout the day. And so there's a lot of reasons why being more easily fatigued is a part of this. And so there's a lot of reasons why people with anxiety might feel more fatigued. Yeah, and I think the thing about it, just like you were saying, when you're feeling that sensation of anxiety, your brain is on high alert. And that takes extra energy and focus to be hypervigilant and looking for any type of problem. But then on top of that hypervigilance, your body also doesn't rest as well, so it doesn't recover as well. So you might be sleeping or doing all the things you normally do, but then not really getting the same amount of recovery. So then that makes you more easily fatigued the next day. So the next one is difficulty in concentrating or mind going blank. So when you're feeling anxious, your mind has a different priority other than focusing on a menial task. It's trying to preserve your life. It thinks there's some danger around the corner and it wants you to be on high alert to protect yourself. So focusing on some task is not the highest priority for the brain at that moment. Same idea with your mind going blank. The information that's stored in your brain when you're calm is in a different section than when your brain is operating from an anxious state. So when you're in that anxious state, you're not able to access that stored information to be able to recall it to use it. It's not that you forgot that information, it is just currently inaccessible to you. And if you're able to calm down, then that information will now be accessible to you again. And I think in the same thought, it's those racing thoughts that happen, right? And so it's difficult to concentrate because you have all this stuff going on in your mind. Somebody invites you to go and do something and they're talking about how much fun it'll be and they're trying to have a conversation with you about it. And in the back of your mind, you're like, okay, I got to keep track of this kid and this kid. Oh, I don't know if this kid's going to even like the food there. Is going to be too many people? Am I going to be anxious? What's going to happen if this... So in the back of your mind, you're having your own conversation with yourself 
while trying to conduct this conversation with someone else. And so, of course, it's going to be difficult to concentrate. So symptom number four is muscle tension. And so as you're constantly kind of keyed up and worried, going through all these things in your mind, of course, you're going to be tense, right? And so your body's going to feel that. Because remember, that mind-body connection is very real. And so if you're experiencing more muscle tension than normal, this may be a symptom of anxiety. Yeah, I think a part of that increased muscle tension is your body, again, is at readiness. It's worried something's wrong. And so that muscle tension is you're not in a relaxed state. It's ready to fight or flee if there's some type of problem that arises. So the next one is sleep disturbance. Having trouble falling asleep or staying asleep is a pretty common hallmark for people who have anxiety. And when you're thinking about that sleep disturbance, again, going back to this idea, your brain thinks something is dangerous near you. Why would it want you to fall asleep easily? Because then you'd be vulnerable to some type of harm if it doesn't think you're in a safe place. And so not allowing you to fall asleep or only to fall asleep when you are extremely exhausted is a reasonable thing when your brain is considering that dangers around the corner. I think also something that's a hallmark for anxiety and people who are struggling to sleep is that when you're very anxious, you're having a tendency to try to avoid those anxious feelings or thoughts by either throwing yourself into work or having some type of distraction with your phone or something along those lines. So when it comes to trying to go to sleep, that's the one time during the day where there are now no distractions. You're trying to fall asleep. There's nothing else to do except for be left to your thoughts. And so that's a lot of times when people get these racing or intrusive thoughts because your brain's like, hey, there's a problem. We need to think about it. We need to solve it. And so then now it's going to take this time right at bedtime to try to solve those problems. And number six is irritability. And as you think about it, when you have this anxiety constantly going on in your mind and you're hyper alert, it can feel so overwhelming because it is that idea of always being in that fight or flight state and always being ready. And so your capacity or your bandwidth to be able to handle small things that you were able to handle in the past is now depleted because of other things. And so when something that maybe normally to you is minor comes your way, it's a big blow up or you're extra irritable because you don't have that bandwidth anymore to deal with small problems as they're coming. This brings up something that we talked about a while ago, I think is actually one of our first podcast topics. And what this is identifying is what's called the emotional Richter scale. And the basic premise behind the emotional Richter scale is the more stressors or the more difficult events that you're currently dealing with in your life, they start to have a compounding effect on you. Kind of similar to the Richter scale for earthquakes. Every time you increase or take a step up on that level, the intensity of the earthquake does 10 times the amount of damage. So a level one earthquake is not very big at all. But when you 10x that to level two, it's still pretty small, but it's 10 times what a one can do. Now, a three is 10x of a two, and so it's now starting to get to be much more noticeable. Now, a level four on a Richter scale is now starting to get pretty high. It's shaky. It's uncomfortable. If you've ever been in a level four earthquake and the epicenter is near you, pretty decent sized earthquake, but still not doing any major damage to modern places. I've definitely been in like a level three earthquake where it was kind of close and I was like, is an earthquake even happening right now? And then I hear on the news or see on Facebook that there was an earthquake. But a four for sure, when that's happening and it's close to you, you know that's happening. Again, not very damaging for a modern place. Now, five is 10 times of what a four is. And that's definitely very noticeable. Even in a more modern place, you might start seeing some minor damage to places. 
And I think this is probably a level five on the Richter scale. If you have generalized anxiety disorder, this is probably as mild as your symptoms get, where you're just kind of walking around all the time. There's minor damage kind of happening in your life. It's still manageable, but it's uncomfortable. You definitely know it's there. It's not like, hey, I think something's wrong. It's a, I know something's wrong. It might not necessarily be stopping you from functioning well in your life, but it's definitely very noticeable. And you keep jumping up that level on the Richter scale and you're 10xing it. Now, level six is a really serious level of earthquake. And there's no way you're going to misunderstand that you're in an earthquake if you're in a level six. And now things are starting to have major problems. There might be some structural damage, even in a more modern country. And then a seven is a very gigantic level of earthquake if that's happening in a major metropolitan type area. There might be several condemned or broken down buildings, especially if they're not up to code. An eight uh, is absolutely astronomical. I think that leveled San Francisco 100 years ago. A nine is gigantic. Basically, any city suffering a level nine would have a hard time standing. There probably would still be buildings standing, but a lot of them would be majorly damaged, probably condemned. And they theorize they've never seen a 10, but they say if a 10 happened, it would almost ring the Earth's crust with how intense that would be. So going back to just generalized anxiety disorder, I would say generalized anxiety disorder is probably hovering between a five and a seven, would probably be normal levels. So somebody experiencing a panic attack, they'd be kind of at those higher levels, seven, eight, nine, because when you're having a panic attack, you're really not functional in the midst of that panic attack. It really is all consuming in that moment. Versus when you have generalized anxiety disorder, it can be damaging, but it's not necessarily all consuming. Your life's not necessarily crumbling around you when you're having generalized anxiety disorder. So just to review those six symptoms, you need to have three of those six, right? So it's restlessness or feeling keyed up on edge, being easily fatigued, difficulty concentrating or your mind going blank, muscle tension, sleep disturbance, and irritability. Now, again, you could have any combo of those three. And so that's why some people can look like they have a little bit of a different type of anxiety from you, but then they might have the same diagnosis. So another part of the diagnostic of generalized anxiety disorder is the disturbance is not better explained by another mental health disorder. Another criteria is that the disturbance that you're experiencing in generalized anxiety disorder isn't better explained by another mental disorder. So for example, the anxiety or worry about having a panic attack or having an anxiety attack would fall under another diagnosis of panic disorder. Or if your anxiety and worry is about contamination or other obsessions, then that would fall under obsessive compulsive disorder. So basically, they're just saying that the disturbance isn't better explained by another diagnosis. And another criteria is that the disturbance isn't attributable to the psychological effects of substances or a medical condition. So basically, what you're experiencing in general anxiety disorder isn't because of substance abuse or medication or a different medical condition like hyperthyroidism. So the last three criteria that Ruth was just going through are exclusionary reasons, meaning that if these are the case, then this is not generalized anxiety disorder. This is something else. The other categories that we were talking about earlier are inclusion categories, meaning these need to be a part of or several of these need to be a part of the experience for you to actually be diagnosed with it. So another aspect of this is that the symptoms that you're experiencing need to be clinically significant, meaning that they cause disruptions in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning in your life. If they're not causing any significant level of dysfunction, then this would not be categorized as generalized anxiety disorder. 
All right, guys, so today's podcast really was focused on helping to get you in the right understanding of what generalized anxiety disorder is. And next time we'll go through a little bit more specifics on other disorders that include anxiety. This is not meant for you to diagnose yourself, but if you're listening to this podcast, you're like, oh man, this sounds a lot like me, or this sounds a lot like my kid, or this sounds a lot like my friend or my relative. This at least gives you a starting point to look at and say, okay, maybe I need to go in and get some professional help in order to help deal with this struggle that I'm currently going through. We want to thank you guys so much for listening. And remember, your mind is a powerful thing. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Mr. and Mrs. Therapy. If you enjoyed this podcast or found it helpful, we'd love for you to take some time and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. If you have a question or a topic you'd like discussed in future episodes, visit our Facebook group, Mr. and Mrs. Therapy Podcast, and let us know. Disclaimer, although we are mental health providers, this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide diagnosis or treatment. Please seek professional help if you're struggling with persistent mental health issues, chronic marital issues, or call the National Suicide Hotline at 988 if you are contemplating suicide.